Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. We're kind of calling this our our last episode of our first season, so we we've had a lot of fun, and we'll be back for for more seasons to come. But uh, this last episode, we're going to kind of try a, a different forum in a way. We're going to just have George and Alan and myself and Andrew uh, really talk about lead acid batteries, which are really at the heart um, of the of the technology of batteries that that we work with and, and use on a daily basis and that George and Alan obviously have spent a career working with. And uh, we kind of want to talk about what are some of the things that people say about lead acid technology that maybe isn't exactly true. And uh, George and Alan can kind of set the record straight and um, we'll kind of take it from there. So welcome back guys. Glad to have you here. Um, what do you get? What do you guys think about this topic about lead acid batteries and lead acid technology and what people say and, and what's really true. Well, it's been around for a few years for a start. Uh, basically lead acid battery, uh, hasn't changed much in about, uh, oh, George are telling me about, about 150 years, uh, as developed by Gaston Plante. In fact that the lead is the, uh, constitutes the, uh, place of the battery, whether it's lead oxide or pure lead. And, uh, Electrolyte is uh, sulfuric acid, hence that acid. But uh, maybe George will give us a little bit of history, and then I'll maybe chirp in with some of the recent developments. Yeah, and as you said, Bill, batteries have been around for a long time. Lead acid, yes. The um, Plante, our friend Graston Plante, was really the uh, the basis on which all of our lead acid batteries today are based. Uh, but batteries started a little bit before that. We can go right back to Oh, it's uh, second century BC or something. The um, there was a battery that was found just outside Baghdad, and it was a earthenware uh, jar, effectively, with a copper another copper cylinder inside and a piece of uh, an iron rod. And what they discovered was if you actually filled it up with uh, something like a fruit juice or a vinegar, uh, anything acidic. Uh, you got about two volts out of it. I've always wanted to try and get one of these uh, replicated for the training courses. I think it'd be fun to demonstrate it to people. But I've got to find somebody that's uh, willing to make me a jar of the right dimensions. But anyway, the whole point is that, that, that nobody knows what it was used for. There has been suggestions it could have been uh, used in sort of uh, religious type procedures. I'm not quite sure. I. I try to stay away from that because it would probably get me in trouble if I'm not, ca- not too careful. But anyway, the point is that that was around. Uh, but the, the the next part of history really comes in before Plante. You have a, a, a gentleman called Gavani who was um, an Italian physicist and doctor. And he uh, he was convinced it was the body that was producing electricity, even in a dead state. And he he did this amazing demonstration of a 
joining a piece, two pieces of wire together when they were attached to a dead frog's leg, and the, the leg jumps. And he was convinced that that was the it was the the, the electricity was coming from the leg. Well, uh, then we had another gentleman called Volta, and he he worked on that. And what he realized was that in fact it wasn't the the frog's leg that was had the energy. It was the fact was that it only worked if you used two different metals. If you used both the same metals as a piece of wire, the, the leg didn't move. If you used two different metals, uh, you could get the leg to move. And it, depending on which metals you used uh, was by how much it moved. Uh, so the, the resultant part of that comes out is that he realized that it was actually something to do with the metals he was using and uh, simply the frog's leg was simply acting as a medium uh, to carry that uh, that energy. Really, that's what it was. And he ended up building the first voltaic pile, which we now know as a voltaic pile, which was basically two different metals sandwiched between some sort of insulator, probably felt or something in those days, and then filled with, I believe it was salt water he used, and he ended up getting a voltage out of it. So he was the the one that produced the first really practical cell, effectively. But the whole point about it was that once once it had basically discharged, it was finished. So that was what today we would refer to as a primary battery. The thing that Plante did was he he, he realised that he could take two, two lead plates and by applying a voltage to them, he could actually change the electrochemical composition of the two lead plates, one to to be effectively a positive plate and one to be a negative plate, and that stored energy. So that, that's where we started. Probably the next piece of history comes after that was we, we moved from Italy to France. We now had a, a French gentleman, Faure, who realised that the, the way that Planty was building his uh, cells, which was effectively wrapping sheets of lead around an insulator uh, to to create what today looks we describe as a jelly roll uh, type of cell, uh, that 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 was limited in the amount of power. And Fourier came up with the idea of actually pasting lead into lead grids and doing the same charging principle. And that is actually still the same way we make lead acid batteries today. Nothing much minus has changed. Minus the frogs, though. Uh, yeah, minus the frogs. But the, but the frogs are funny. It's a good part of the story, you know. I mean, I just I I'm sitting back listening to this and saying saying were the frogs dead before or after the experiment, and mm-hmm. how many frogs had to be sacrificed for this? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know that answer. Uh, but it was dead. They were dead. At least in the drawing I used to demonstrate it in one of the classes, it was dead. <laughs> Um, it was definitely it does, dead know, after it, it, does, it does make for an interesting part of a lesson to uh, demonstrate the leg jumping. I bet it does. And it also confuses people when I'm talking about electrochemical uh, methods of generating electricity and I use a frog rather than a battery to start with because it starts where it started off. Anyway, beside the point. But now the point is that uh, there were some changes. The, the next real change into the battery technology wasn't until the 1960s, 70s, when we introduced the VLA battery. But um, Alan was, well, we both were, but Alan really was whole involved as that battery was introduced into the U.S. market. So I'll let him pick it up from there. Thanks for the history lesson, George. 
you might also want to bring a lemon into class with a couple of pieces of wires and you can create a battery. But uh, think about the lead acid battery. Lead is a very soft material. And uh, the initial lead acid batteries, they use pure lead plates. Uh, but these proved to be somewhat uh, cumbersome, didn't like, uh, although we're talking about stationary batteries, you know, they didn't like to be moved. So various parts of the world, people put their heads together and decided that uh, they needed to put some hardening agent or strengthening agent into the lead mixture, into the lead slurry. And uh, the mixture of choice uh, was, uh, or the alloy of choice was initially antimony. And uh, although these batteries work very, very well, they had a shortcoming in that as they aged, the need for watering of the batteries was increased. So I guess the 1940s, probably, Bell Labs, which was the uh, technical arm of the uh, United States telephone companies, uh, the Bell companies, it was their R&D arm. They said, uh, well, you know, the lead antimony batteries are a problem uh, because of this increased watering and some other problems. They thought they could come up with uh, something better. So they uh, eventually come up with the lead calcium battery. And I always say calcium was used as a hardening agent instead of antimony. And don't forget at the time, the telephone company was the largest user of batteries in most countries. So with the, when Bell Labs said, okay, we're going to go with a lead calcium battery, uh, all the battery manufacturers in North America said, okay, fine. That's what we'll build. Uh, the rest of the world thought, man, maybe calcium's got some problems. Uh, so we'll take a more careful approach. Uh, so it, this led to the fact that uh, there was a little bit of a divide between uh, North America and the rest, of, the rest of the world with respect to technologies they used. That calcium battery worked very, very well, but it had a major drawback uh, in that as the battery aged, calcium uh, expanded and caused the positive plates in the battery to grow. And this fact brought itself, brought a whole new set of problems to the, uh, to the lead acid battery. However, uh, they persisted with it and uh, said, well, we recognize the problems, so but we can take care of that by careful charging of the battery. That antimony battery still exists, mainly in a form with some selenium added to the mixture. So they call it low antimony. It's only about 2% antimony. And the fact that they added selenium uh, took care of some of the watering problems and some of the other problems. But here we are with the lead calcium battery. So since it was the battery of choice, the charging of that battery had to be very, very tightly regulated. And as George mentioned, around about the, in the 1980s, maybe a bit before that, because uh, Gates Rubber Company here had done some research and British Telecom and uh, I believe it was Chloride, Chloride Industrial Batteries had done some research in England into a what they call valve-regulated lead-acid battery. People still call it sealed maintenance-free battery, and it's neither. This gets my goat up because it's not sealed. It has a pressure relief valve, and it's certainly not maintenance-free. But anyway, the 
that calcium design were still used for the VRLA battery. Now, the fact that it was a non-liquid electrolyte, either a starved electrolyte design or absorbed electrolyte, you might want to say, or a gelled electrolyte design, they still had the problems with the positive plate growth. So, and once again, these batteries had to be very, very carefully charged because if they were overcharged, they gassed. And with the valve-regulated lead-acid battery, when the battery gasses, its uh, pressure relief valve opens and, or should I say, excessively gasses. Normal gassing is recombined within the cell, but uh, pressure relief valve opens and hydrogen and oxygen are expelled from the cell. Uh, hydrogen and oxygen, as you know, is water. And the uh, fact that it's a valve-regulated lead-acid battery, in all practical purposes, that water cannot be replenished like it could be with a vented lead-acid cell. The, the traditional uh, pasted plate, flat plate cell, George, as you mentioned, also they had a couple of other designs. They had, of course, the tubular cell where the cells, where the uh, electro, uh, electrode, where the positive electrode was encased in a, uh, in a tube, insulated tube. So, you know, we're going to start talking about actual battery life. I'll throw one other thing in, into this without getting too long-winded. Bell Labs then, because they had pro- created their own problems essentially uh, with the lead calcium cell, decided to look at a different design. And they come up with what's known as the round cell, whereas the plates were not hung uh, like at a traditional battery, were not hung or vertically, but in other words, but they were horizontal. But that's a whole new uh, issue. But anyway, uh, get back to the thing. I'd like to talk a little bit about battery life. And you know, there's a great difference between published battery life and what a battery actually going to last. Uh, George alluded to the fact that I became a whistleblower. George helped me in that, to blow that whistle. But uh, way back in, I believe it was 1990, George, because we'd installed thousands and thousands of valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, and they were not lasting more than a year, two years, three years. So maybe you can chip, it, uh, chip in on that, George, please. Oh, I can chip in on that because, yeah, because the, it's, the very early designs all had different failure mechanisms. The, uh, the technology was not fully understood. And like uh, many things that happen is it got rushed to market. There's no question at all about that. But the, uh, the biggest problem was that the, uh, we didn't understand how to handle them. And I, uh, I believe that I have to say that, but let's be honest, that today they are much, much better. They're a lot better than they were. We're now seeing, you know, we can get five years out of a five-year life battery. And I know you will disagree with me later on on that, but uh, we'll, we can talk about that in more detail. But the, overall, the, uh, the valve regulated cell is now a much more reliable device. Uh, but the, by far the best, no question at all about it, the, the, the best of the lot is still a vented lead acid cell, whether it's um, low antimony or, or calcium. The, the big thing I would want to make a point is that within the calcium, there is, a, there is a problem with calcium cells, especially when we're looking at many of the applications today where people want to use them in energy storage. The calcium cell does not like to be charged and discharged. 
And that's, uh, you know, that is a, uh, that can be a major problem. You've got to start looking at antimony then because it will quite happily be charged and discharged. So George, walk us back to the lead selenium. What kind of lifespans were you, were you looking at back when that was the primary battery? I know you mentioned the, you had to start watering it more. When did that actually take occur? Was it after the first year or were these actually getting a substantial amount of time in the field? No, the, the, the lead selenium is, is actually relatively recent. They, 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 for many years, they were pure uh, lead antimony. And at the time then when the lead calciums came in, as Alan said, we went over to, to, to lead calcium almost overwhelmingly. Today, they are, as I said, the, most of the lead selenium designs come out of uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. That's what they're based on. I believe I, I'm not, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm thinking that you can buy some American cells that are lead antimony, and I'm not sure whether they have any selenium in them at all or whether they're pure lead antimony. You have any comments on that one, Alan? And then those would be the ones that they would require more watering, Alan? Yeah, it was the antimony cells that required the watering, and they added uh, selenium uh, to them, and mainly in Europe, to uh, slow down this watering process. But uh, let me change the tack a little bit. Valve rigged with uh, vented lead acid batteries, the industry had a standard. uh, And that standard was that uh, batteries were designed for 20-year life, 10-year life, and five-year life. And uh, when they come out with valve regulated lead acid batteries, the marketing people who gladly, you know, gave people what they wanted, the users wanted something smaller, lighter, cheaper, more user-friendly, and my goodness, the marketing people gave them that, except it wasn't really what they thought they were getting. But so they had to adopt, they adopted, uh, you know, same thing. This is a 20-year life battery. This is a 10-year life battery. This is a five-year life battery. With the vented lead acid, the uh, flooded cells, people call them, this was very true. You get 20 years, maybe 25 years, even 30 years out of it if it was properly maintained. Hmm. The same with the, uh, wasn't too many of 10-year life, some 14-year life, things like that. But anyway, it was pretty much true. With five regular lead acid batteries, adhering to the same uh, standard for length of service, what we found out very quickly was that the 10-year life battery uh, supposedly the 10 life your life battery, which was the probably the one that was launched first. It wasn't performing. It would last, uh, depending upon the application was, it, it would last a lot less. The applications that they were going into, they were coming out of the very tightly temperature controlled, uh, charge current controlled environs of a telephone central office. They were coming out into the uh, networks, and they're also coming out and being used for UPS, UPSs. Now, the UPS is a different animal. The charger in the UPS is a completely different animal to the telecom, the very tightly regulated and filtered telecom charger. So, uh, and used in UPSs, uh, the idea of the UPS manufacturer was to come up with the cheapest possible charger. So they cut out a lot of the filtering and regulating, but not only the environment being used in the UPS, uh, a lot of uh, ripple currents were generated by the inverter, and these were reflected back into the battery. So 
that pure old UPS battery uh, operating probably at a higher temperature on a less than uh, desirable charger, subject to a, a lot of uh, uh, ripple currents, uh, was going to last a lot, lot less than the so-called 10-year life battery uh, used in telecom. So what we found out early on was the UPS batteries were lasting about two to three years, whereas the telecom batteries were lasting about five years. So a company called uh, Best, uh, which we, we, George and I both had a lot of dealings with, uh, they come up with this idea of, okay, we're charging the batteries in our UPS, but we're killing them at the same time. So why don't we just switch the charger off when it's not needed? And that's what they did. And we found out, ooh, we're getting a lot longer life. A little bit more about that later, because some of the larger UPS companies now are doing the exact same thing. So with the 20-year life batteries, so-called 20-year life batteries, these are mainly the large uh, two-volt cells rather than the six-volt monoblocks or six-volt uh, units. They were deployed heavily in the cellular radio industries and some other things like that, where they required a long-duration reserve time rather than a UPS reserve time, which might only have been 10, 15 minutes. These things were used for where you wanted about eight hour, four to eight hours reserve time. We found out that they were only lasting probably at the most five to seven years, you know, in use. So there was a lot of finger pointing. The manufacturers were pointing the finger, fingers at the users to say they're not using them properly. The users were pointing their fingers at the integrators uh, who they were not installed properly. But what it all boiled down to is that the batteries were not being charged properly. And during my time with a uh, company called Interstate Power Care, Division of Interstate Batteries, I was responsible for all the warranties of the stationary batteries. And I found out that about 60% of the warranty claims, when I delved into them, I found out the batteries weren't being charged properly. So here we had a situation where uh, the batteries required a tighter charger regime than the vented lead acid batteries, but they weren't getting that. Uh, they required a more environmental friendly uh, location, optimum temperature, ambient temperature, around 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Of course, that never happens. So there was a lot of inherent problems. And this gave the researchers some things to, uh, to think about. So they started refining the batteries a little bit. And maybe I can hand over to George. But first of all, let me say that the BATCON, the International Battery Conference, grew out of the fact that people were using valve-regulated lead-acid batteries and they weren't getting the performance that was, that was specified or the performance that was claimed. So BATCON was, for, was founded so that uh, everybody could have a platform and that included the users, the maintainers, the integrators, and even the manufacturers. And over a period of several years, uh, instead of people shouting at each other, uh, they began to talk to each other. And my, and my opinion, this has a lot to do with the uh, improvement of the design of the five regular lead acid batteries that George spoke about. So over to you, George. Hold on while I'm waking up. That was a real solo performance there, Mr. Byrne. Well, you know... Uh, uh, I think I told you one time before that I've just joined this uh, self-help group uh, you know, for those people that tend to go on a little bit, and it's called On and On and On. Yeah. 
Did you I noticed. That? Okay. At least what I talk about makes sense, George. So anyway. It does? Okay. In my opinion. Well, yeah. Oh, of course, in your opinion. I, I, I'm good. I, I can't disagree with the basic facts you discussed. Uh, the, you're, you're absolutely right. But I, I think we have to understand that probably of, of all the things you're talking about is that the actual uh, maintenance of the battery is probably more important than anything else. Uh, and an understanding of why batteries fail is also a help. Uh, as you said, the, uh, if they're not under ideal environmental conditions, they are going to uh, age much more rapidly. You know, you, if you're talking about you use uh, 77 because you're thinking Fahrenheit, I still prefer to use uh, centigrade in this case, typically 25 degrees centigrade. If you simply operate that battery 10 degrees higher at 35 degrees centigrade, which is not difficult at all to achieve in an outside cabinet, you will actually half the life of that battery, simply due to the, the faster rate of corrosion that takes place. So, you know, it, it's, it's not a case of, well, it's not a five-year battery any longer. It's only a two-and-a-half-year battery. And there's nothing the matter with the battery. It simply is you've accelerated the corrosion rate and it's going to fail. And that's, that's probably the, the, the biggest challenge we have is getting people to understand the environmental conditions under which these batteries are being operated is key to their life. But the other thing that's interesting is that in the US, without a doubt, our, with the VRLA cell, our uh, almost consistent failure rate is either the corrosion, if it's been charged reasonably well, but if it's being overcharged, we suffer from dry out because you mentioned that the uh, the pressure relief valve will operate and that will actually allow some of the uh, the water vapors, the hydrogen oxygen to come out and it will oh, then the battery the cell will start to dry out. It's, um, it's, it's, that, it's quite a standard failure rate for us. If I go over to Europe and do it the other way around, they'll tell you that they never see dry out. They only ever see sulfation. That's their biggest problem. So clearly, in the US, we overcharge them, and in Europe, they undercharge them. And you would think we'd get it right, but no. I think part of the problem is you know, the fact is that you get you get a high, high level and a low level range or part of the range from the battery manufacturer. And obviously, they always go towards the low end of it and we go to the high end of it. You're right about the battery, you know, failure of the uh, higher temperatures. And, you, and you're right in the figure you gave uh, for every 10 degrees centigrade, uh, 18 degrees Fahrenheit above that nominal 25 degrees centigrade, 77 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to half the battery life. But the other thing that you mentioned uh, with respect to dry out, which is caused by overcharging, the a twenty percent loss in electrolyte from that battery, in other words, the uh, oxygen hydrogen, equates to a fifty percent loss in battery capacity, or fifty percent, sorry, should I say, uh, loss of battery age. In other words, that battery is only going to last half the time you thought it was, but the Back to the charging, telecom is pretty easy because you usually have a 48-volt system or even with wireless 24-volt system. So you only have so many cells in series in that battery or you have, so say, two or four 12-volt monoblocks in series. With the UPS, 
uh, or even uh, where, where you have a 240, 480 volt battery, it's very, very difficult to balance the charging uh, among each cell. So some cells are going to get overcharged and some are going to get undercharged. Uh, now, I'm not advocating individual cell equalization here. I don't believe in that at all. But uh, the, it's exasperated with the larger the battery string you have, even with utilities. Now, utilities uh, uh, typically uh, a substation battery is 120 volts, uh, but it's still 60 cells. So how do you manage this, uh, this uh, you know, difficulty in charging each cell correctly? Well, you can't really, but uh, battery monitoring goes a long way to improving your overall charge voltage. And also, if you couple that with uh, uh, some current sensors and uh, temperature sensors, you know, you can see that the charge current is increasing with the temperature. It doesn't. There's something wrong with that battery. Or if you can see that the uh, temperature is increasing and the charge current is increasing as well. There's something else wrong with that battery. So uh, monitoring has to go hand in hand with the charging of that battery. And there's, you know, we, we can talk about temperature compensation. We can talk about uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, monitoring. But uh, you mentioned earlier that maintenance is key. Well, it so happens, folks, that these so-called sealed maintenance-free batteries, they're neither sealed nor are they maintenance-free. And the ironic thing is that... Uh, the maintenance requirement in uh, IEEE uh, 1188, I believe it is, 1187, 1188, are stringent as they are for the vented lead-acid batteries. So, uh, your thoughts on that, George? Well, that's the, you're exactly right. As I said, it, it's, it's important that we understand that uh, you know you you don't want to be at either end of the spectrum of what the battery manufacturer allows you to operate at you want to be right in the middle of it the other thing that most people don't seem to realize is that you have to look at what the battery manufacturer says they want to charge that it is not the same for every battery Depending on that additive that's been added to it, and many, you know, because there are, although we talked about calcium and we talked about antimony and a little bit of selenium, there are other additives added to these cells now today in order to uh, change some of the characteristics, whether they want to operate it at a higher temperature or a lower temperature. Uh, so it's important that you actually look at it and set it. I've, I've actually been uh, at a, you know, doing a commissioning of a monitoring system on a UPS here in, in the DC area. And I said to the young lady engineer that was working with me from the UPS company, I said to her, you do, you do know you're uh, very close to overcharging this battery, you know, this particular model, you need to bring that voltage down. And she told me she couldn't because their service manager had said he wasn't playing the games with these battery companies. And this is the voltage that every UPS would be set to. I'm not sure whether he had a deal with a battery company or something for replacements, but um, he was clearly damaging the batteries with that type of attitude. You're entirely right. But the thing is that uh, some of the UPS companies uh, or even uh, manufacturers of chargers, utility chargers, are their own worst enemies because traditionally the charge voltage of a battery or charge current of a battery and, and voltage 
was set at 2.25 volts per cell. Well, some of, that was okay with you when you had a specific gravity electrolyte of about 1.26, 1.28. But what, what, the manuf- what the manufacturer started doing is to increase the gravity of the electrolyte and to get uh, better performance in a lower space, higher energy density state. But uh, the charge voltage of a battery is purely dependent upon the specific gravity of the electrolyte. If you tell me what the specific gravity of the electrolyte is, I can tell you exactly what that charge voltage should be. And you were right in the fact, and that's why I jumped in, is that the people have to be very, very careful when they installed a new battery. When they install a new battery, first of all, they had to put it in service properly, which almost never happens, as you know. But they also have to make sure that they're charging at the manufacturer's recommended charge voltage, or it's in that window. And uh, if not anything, air, air on the high side, because if you undercharge it, the battery's going to sulfate, and uh, you could hold a other set of problems. But uh, people have to make sure that the battery is charged at the charge voltage recommended by the manufacturer, not by the UPS company, not by the charger company. Otherwise, you're going to have problems, big problems. So you guys both mentioned the correlation between temperature and lifespan of the battery and how that very much is detrimental if you let it go hot. What are we talking here in terms of time frames? Are, are we talking a battery that is continuously above this threshold, a battery that touches this threshold for short periods of time often, or is that, is that time frame coming in at longer periods of reoccurring uh, abuse at that level? And is that all ambient, or is a lot of that the heat created from overcharging or some of these charger aspects you guys have been touching on? I'll pick that one up, Andrew, because uh, all of those take in, come into uh, the uh yeah, it's, it's theoretically it's at a continuous rate, but it does impact the that corrosion happens every time the voltage goes above that sort of level. It accelerates the corrosion. So even if it's only half a day that it's above the temperature, which it could be on an outside uh, cabinet, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be building that up during the summer. And um, some of the some of the graphs you look at from an ambient temperature point of view. Um, you know, you, you very difficult to make sense out of them and get something. I took the one of the things I've done. I, I took a, a graph from an outdoor cabinet, and um, I actually plotted it in Excel instead of having the zigzag graph. I plotted it in Excel from the the max to the min. And when you did that, it turned out that within that cabinet, that battery had been above thirty five degrees C for or a bit above the 25 degrees C, at some point, anything from, you know, a couple of degrees to 30 degrees for 192 days out of the year. So you really were going to accelerate the failure of that battery, no question at all about it. But that's the thing that the customers don't understand. I'm going to come back to something Alan talked about a little bit earlier, if you don't mind. You talked about the the challenge you have with uh, UPS systems. In some cases, in most of the large ones in the the US, you effectively got uh, 240 cells, the 480 volt systems, you get 240 cells. Just to make life more difficult, most of them are in um, 12 volt units. So, you know, 
40 12 volt units and you have the you have a 480 volt battery but as again as Alan said the the it is the electrochemical response to the specific gravity of the acid and a number of other factors that dictate what that actual uh, cell voltage is going to be developed with the charging current and uh, quite often if you could measure them in the center the the center of the battery is the part that gets warmest because physically because it's uh, you know the heat generated as a charging process tends to be in the, into the middle of it because that's not the plates aren't getting exposed to air or anything within a, a VRLA cell so you're going to get failures with and adjustments within there. They're not behaving quite the same way. And then and there you look at it, if one of them starts to fail and either goes higher voltage or lower voltage, that is going to impact the voltage and all the rest of them. Now, Alan is probably going to tell me, as he normally does when I talk about this, that it doesn't change it enough to affect it. Well, maybe he needs to come and do one of my classes because I, I got a perfect example of this where two identical UPSs, identical batteries, identical UPS models, roughly the same age. So they were the same UPS model and the same battery generation. One in which the customer identified every cell that went out of range within the monitor, or every unit in this case, and had them changed out. That five-year battery actually lasted six years before they changed it out, and it would have supported the load up to that six years based on the data I was looking at. We have another site, same, basically the same, same company, same customer, you just had lots of small sites. And in that one, the service manager within the site did not change anything out because he didn't believe in it. They changed that battery out just at four years because it was completely dead. And let me tell you, had they had a power failure any time after two years, that battery would not have supported the load. So I'm an absolute advocate that you have to change out these units when they start to deviate, because even a small deviation in any one of them is going to start to affect how the rest of the cells behave, and they will age and fail faster. And until we get that into people's, you know, understand that, we're going to have problems with it. I won't really disagree with anything you're saying, but except they, I'm all for changing out uh, defective cells or unit. But the question is, how long into the life of the battery do you do that? Because when you introduce new cells or new units into an existing battery string, you unbalance the resistor network. And consequently, uh, the new cells will get overcharged and the old ones will get undercharged. So you got to determine uh, when do I change out cells? And the rule of thumb is roughly about 30 to 40% into the, uh, into the battery life. Otherwise you're just, you're creating, you're, you're being a, creating a catalyst for the failure of the other cells in the battery. Uh, but let me go back to something Andrew mentioned, uh, which was very, very important. And I picked up on it. He said, is it ambient temperature or is it the temperature of the battery we're worried about? Ambient temperature is very, very important uh, for the operating, good operation of the battery, but it's the temperature of the battery you should be more concerned about. Now, the heating effect of a battery uh, the shows, manifests itself mostly 
are mainly at the negative post of that battery cell or unit. So you should be measuring the temperature of the battery at the negative post, and that will give you an indication of the, you know, the heat being generated within that battery. There's two different types of VRLA batteries. One is the uh, gel cell, uh, with gelled electrolyte, and the other is a starved electrolyte, the absorbed glass mat. Well, with the absorbed glass mat battery, there's another problem in that because as the uh, electrolyte is de- not only is, is depleted, but uh, as it starts off with, not all of it is in contact with the case of the battery. Therefore, it doesn't get good heat dissipation, as opposed to a gel cell, which gives you good heat dissipation because the electrolyte is in a gel condition and is in good contact with the battery case. But the thing you most worry about uh, in charging the battery or overcharging the battery, or maybe just charging it normally, and there's a problem developed within the battery, is the increase in battery temperature. And this gives rise to what's known as thermal runaway. It's a fact that uh, if the internal temperature of the battery increases, it's going to draw more current. And when it draws more current, it increases even more. So you have to have a way of halting this thermal runaway. And the only way you can do that is with temperature compensated charging. Thankfully, these days, most of the charges that are out there have temperature compensation. But to me, that if I was only to be able to monitor three things on a battery, I would monitor temperature, I would monitor voltage, and I would monitor charge current. And if any of these go out of whack, I know I'll have a problem. And George, uh, I know you know a lot more about battery monitoring than I do, but uh, I wonder if you agree with that or not. I don't, I, I, you know, sadly, I won't disagree with you. Because, yeah, they are they're key. Omic value does provide you another indication. But one of the things I, I will try and always teach people is that there is no single uh, measurement that you take that tells you the status of the battery. It's a combination of all the measurements and exactly what you said. It's their interaction and how they are behaving at the time or anything, whether it's under charge or discharge. It's how they behave is an indication of how well that system is working. Theoretically, if you have all these cells made at the same time, they should all be behaving the same way as they discharge or are as they're charging. And you will see that with a monitor. You'll catch that they're not. And anyone that isn't, it's a good indication there may be a problem. The question always becomes is, is it sufficient a problem to uh, change it out? now? I've seen uh, one of the biggest problems, and I think one of the reasons why you're saying, you know, 30% of the life before we do stop changing it out. Part of the reason for that is that the, if you start looking at the data, you realize that when the service company changed out a unit, they failed to charge it before they put it into the, the string. And that, that's probably the biggest problem we have is because they're, they're, getting, a, they're getting a unit from a distributor, it may well have been on the shelf for three, four months, and there's no record on it as to when it arrived or when it was last uh, charged. And uh, if they put that in, yeah, it's going to be way undercharged compared to the other cells in the string or other units. Uh, so it's going to take its while, and that's going to unbalance the battery even more for a period. But if you fully charge it and put it in, it won't. It, it, will, it will stabilize. It will age faster. That's no problem. And the other thing you've got to think about is 
that in many cases, the decision about whether to change a unit out or change a whole battery out is all totally dependent on the budget. It's uh, not what you mean we need to change that battery out. It's not in the budget. We're not going to do it. So under those circumstances, no matter how old it is, if you want to put the um, change, the, you know, change, put one more module in and help it carry through until such time as you've got a budget, then um, you can do it. So, yeah, both of you guys were touching on this this point about the the lifespan and changing out a battery. And Alan, you had mentioned 30 to 40 percent roughly. So in my mind, on a 20 year battery, that's somewhere around the ballpark of seven years. And when we talk about batteries, it, to me, I look at it, the battery system as a community of batteries. So if you have one bad apple in that community, it really brings it down. So I just wonder, since we're talking about lifespan of batteries, what happens after that seven-year mark if you're on that critical aspect where maybe the system's 10 years old, but you find that you have some some bad batteries in there, but it's probably detrimental to maybe change out that single battery or some of those batteries? How does that come into play with your expectations on the what's left of life of that battery system as a whole? It's obviously most likely not making it to 20 years. And, and what do you do with those bad batteries that you've identified in the string? Well, there's a couple of things you've got to take into consideration. Uh, but before I answer that, we were talking about the, uh, cha- you know, changing out the battery cells. Uh, if you are purchasing a new battery system, whether it's for telecom, utility, UPS, the smart thing to do is order some additional battery cells and put these on an external charger so that the cells all age at the same time. So when you introduce a cell into the string, it's not only is it the same age, uh, hence the same internal resistance roughly as the other cells, but it also is charged. So you can introduce it much better. But if you have a battery that has aged, and the IEEE defines battery end of life 80% of rated capacity. That's fine. So you have a battery that's designed to support a load of uh, so many, so many ampere hours. Use round figures, thousand ampere hours uh, at the eight hour rate. But that load is not, is only half of that. So therefore, there is useful life ba- left in that battery after it declines to that 80% figure. But the other thing you have to remember is that once it gets to that figure, the degradation of the battery is much, much faster. It's, a, it's the IEEE determined the 80% figure because they found that that's when the battery starts to degrade more rapidly. So you may be fooling yourself into the fact that uh, I got some useful life because life will start dropping off very, very drastically after that. 80%, no, it's 80%, probably the knee in the curve, just, uh, and then it will, uh, you know, degrade a lot faster. I'm a big fan of looking at all the things involved, all the aspects, and seeing what I can do with that battery. It may, it may give me another year. It may give me a chance to uh, budget the battery I hadn't budgeted for. In a lot of cases, that's why people will start using a battery they know it's defective because they just haven't got the money in the budget. So that's my opinion on that. Yes, if, if you have a large vented system, then 
by all means, you know, spare batteries are a good idea. If you've got, which most of the large data centers have, UPSs with often five battery cabinets in there, if you have a monitoring system on that, uh, you can, uh, and you're starting to get failures throughout the system. You know, you can see them, the ones that are starting to give you, you imagine might fail. Um, one of the things you can do is actually identify the cabinet with the washed batteries in it and simply replace the battery in that cabinet completely and then use the ones that are still okay, according to the monitor, to replace the uh, potential problem ones in the other cabinets. And a good service company will do that. In fact, they might even, if they change the cabinet out, take the good ones and put them on charge back at their own shop for a period so that they can uh, they can swap out any as they fail going on. It's all part of how do you handle maintenance to give it ensure your battery reliability. To me, the biggest challenge we have with maintenance is that people seem to get into their head that as long as you take the readings, that's the maintenance. No, taking the readings is only the start. It's how do you handle what you identify, the problems you identify, how do you handle them in order to maximize the life of that battery? Or more importantly, ensure that that battery operates as required if we have a utility failure. Once again, uh, let me go back to what I talked about initially, and that's the proper charging of batteries. Eagle Eye has a very, very good technical note uh, with respect to proper charging of lead-acid batteries. I know it's very good because I wrote it, but uh, anyway, it is peer-reviewed. It was presented at BATCON, and I would urge every battery user or customer, or Eagle Eye customers uh, to read this. It'll, it'll open your eyes about some things. The other thing we've got at Eagle Eye is a calculator that will give you a rough idea of how long your battery's going to last. Not time-wise, but percentage of design life if operated at certain temperatures. And we can utilize that as well. We're not saying, oh, you're going to be operating your battery at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 35 degrees C, going to kill your battery. As long as you recognize the fact that you're operating at a higher temperature and you can reduce the charge voltage to compensate for that, your battery's going to last a lot longer than uh, if you didn't do anything at all. So we're, we've got a lot of tools that will tell the customers or try to inform the customers how to uh, charge your battery pro properly. The other thing is that people overlook is the fact that when a battery is first installed, it needs to be given an initialization charge. If it doesn't get this initialization charge or freshening charge, it's never going to perform adequately. Never. So uh, we also talk about that as well. Some food for thought. So with respect to battery life, I'd, I'll just kind of summarize what, what I see is happening is that there's new designs out there. I'm not going to go into, the, into them too deeply, but there's uh, pure lead. Uh, sorry, there's uh, lead tin batteries. There's uh, some other uh, different uh, plate additives uh, to try and make the battery batteries last longer. Uh, thin plate pure lead, that's another design. But the, the thing is that not only is these new designs 
help to extend the battery life, but they also extend, can extend the battery storage time. And when batteries are in storage, they're just discharging. So back to what I said about freshening charge, if you have a battery that's been on the shelf for three or four months and you put it into service, you better be giving out a, fr- a freshening charge uh, before you, before you st- start using your system. So once again, that's just my thoughts, uh, which as always are open to uh, criticism, uh, fault finding, uh, correction, and everything else. I, I may be opinionated, but I, I don't pretend to be right all the time. Just 99% of the time. As we all and are. And it's my job to find the net 1%, isn't it? So, Alan, when, when it comes to, I, I really keep going back to the point about the temperature and the charging. So, the way that I would see it is, I probably wouldn't want to install a charger without temperature compensation capabilities in this day and age. And with a charger, even with that capabilities, what if you're overcharging? How would that interact with its own capability for temperature compensation? Would it just de- would it be overcharging until the batteries got hot and then it would derate there? Or would you hope that someone that has that feature would know what they're doing as far as setting their charger to the right charging aspects? Well, that's a good question. And if I understood it uh, correctly, Andrew, the, each battery uh, manufacturer for each battery type has got a temperature compensation figure. It's usually something like uh, 1.7 volts or 1.7 millivolts per degrees, whatever, whatever, degrees F, three millivolts per degrees C. So you have to set the temperature compensation at this figure. Uh, so you, you're, you're fooling yourself if you don't. And I think that would answer your question, Andrew. Yeah. There is a temperature compensation figure, which is usually published on the bat- battery manufacturer's data sheet. If not, just call the battery manufacturer and they, they will give you that figure. But the other thing, Andrew, is that you've got to understand is that when you are setting the initial voltage of that charger, you want it to be right in the midpoint of the battery manufacturer's range, but you also want to ensure that you turned the temperature compensation off before you set it, because otherwise you're going to be setting a value and the the charger itself is going to be trying to adjust that by the temperature compensation. Mm. So you need to make sure that you turn temperature compensation off before you set the voltage for that particular battery string, and then you can turn temperature compensation back on. That's you know, the that's important. But I'm going to come back to something Alan talked about, the freshening charge. Yeah, freshening charge is absolutely essential. But the other thing that's absolutely essential as well, if you want to maintain or achieve any level of reliability, is to do an acceptance discharge test. You know, I it's one of the things I did in my previous career. I supervised a lot of data center commissionings, and, uh, you know, 10, 20 modules that failed during a discharge test, uh, acceptance test, were not unusual. Now, if you don't do that acceptance test, that discharge acceptance test, those are going to be sitting in your battery with the potential to fail at your next discharge when you think it's all very good. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is that's – and it's – because most of those data centers were brand new at the time, there was always a commissioning discharge test with the, the main contractors. The problem is that when the contractor replaces one of these batteries later in life, 
They don't do a discharge test. So you're just introducing potential failures, what we refer to as infant mortality. Would you agree with that, Alan? Yeah, the uh, temperature, setting a temperature compensation is critical. The, what, what temperature compensation is, it increases or decreases, uh, it'll decrease the uh, charge voltage, hence decreasing the charge current. When the uh, temperature rises and the inverse applies to when the temperature falls. And the other thing is that we got to talking about freshening charges. The thing that happens is for a to do a, a freshening charge can take up to 72 hours. People don't want to do that. They have people on site, they're not going to keep them on site for, for 72 hours. So, so how do you get around this? Well, you can't really. Now, a commissioning load test, a service test, is very, very important as well. But once again, that takes time and it takes money. And people are not willing to pay that. So, you know, the trend seems to be, okay, I know I haven't put it in service properly. Okay, so we'll change the battery out three years rather than five years. And I, I run across that attitude a lot of the time, coupled by the fact that why do I need to do that? They're maintenance-free batteries. All right, guys. Well, uh, we got to kind of wrap it up here. Are there any final comments you guys want to leave with uh, with the audience here on setting the record straight on lead-acid batteries? Or have you guys said it all? Yeah, that's not possible, is it? I don't think we said it all, but I think the, the key you've, you've heard from both of us in slightly different directions is that maintenance and treating that battery properly during its life is the absolute key to, to achieving reliability. That uh, it doesn't, you know, if we do, if as a user you don't do that, then it doesn't matter how well the battery has been manufactured, it's going to fail. My part in comment would be very, very simple: is lead is not dead. You know, there's still a place for it in the in the industry, I believe. And if uh, I was on a uh, heart lung machine, say. And I was depending upon the uh, source of power. I'd want that battery back up to be flooded, vented, lead acid batteries, or maybe nickel cadmium, but we won't even go there. But I certainly wouldn't want it to be dependent upon a battery that wasn't, or a valve regulated lead acid battery that, that wasn't put into service properly. So that's just my thoughts on that. And here would be mine. If you treat things bad in your life, whether it's your batteries, your friendships, anything, they won't be there when you need them the most. Just remember that, Andrew, when you talk to me next. <laughs> well said, guys. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, you guys have a great day. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then. <laughs>